0: Thank you all. Of course, they have no choice <laughs> since we're self-quarantined at the monastery. <laughs> but thank you all who are tuning in um, each or, either by live streaming or by watching a recording of this talk. We have just finished a session, a nine-day sesheen, uh, our March 2020 Sashin. And the theme was to be the sound session. It's usually our sound Sashin. And we were hearing the cries of the world when we went into Sashin because of this situation with uh, the coronavirus and the wave of this pandemic, which is now uh, hitting the eastern shore and Seattle in the U.S., the two epicenters, and New York City and Seattle. And one of the disadvantages of social media is, you know, in the old days there were epidemics all the time, wiping out a third to a half of populations in different countries, but there was no social media, so you didn't see it coming. (laughs) Uh, You know, maybe you got a few messages, but... um, from somebody riding a fast horse. Um, But most people didn't know until it hit, and they didn't know the extent of the epidemic or that it was a pandemic. You might know that it hit your village and an adjacent village or your city and some adjacent cities, but you didn't know the extent of what was happening. Now, we know the extent, which um, can create suffering because... Actually, right now, very few of us know anybody with COVID. I do know from friends in Italy and Spain. uh, They know people with COVID and are very worried about them. But here in the U.S., um, especially on the West Coast, we don't actually know someone with this illness or someone who's died from it, yet we will soon. So instead, we're just thrown into a state of fear and anxiety about it because of what we're learning as it moves it moves over to the U.S. and then down to Central and South America and Africa. On the other hand, it, ha- it gives us time to be prepared. The information we're getting from social media and what seems to be working in other countries So it gives us a sense of some kind of uh, control over something which seems almost uncontrollable, that we can at least quarantine ourselves and hope to flatten the curve so that the healthcare system won't be massively overwhelmed or even collapse as is happening in some countries. And we, we can reduce the number of deaths because people will get adequate healthcare, we can reduce the tremendous personal stress on healthcare providers, and uh, we can buy some time to, for drug companies to test different drugs, which they're doing now. It's actually over a hundred drugs they're looking at um, and sorting out, and then perhaps we'll even have time to develop a vaccine. So. Sitting at home and apparently doing nothing is actually doing a lot in terms of preventing a lot of suffering and unnecessary death. So we are here at the monastery sitting at home. And we had the advantage that we were entering Sashin, which we decided to go ahead and do, and then through live streaming and recording to offer all of that, plus all of the... Programs downtown to anyone who wanted to tune in. Of course, our sangha, but anyone who wanted to tune in. And Hogan led the heroic efforts in the first twenty-four to forty-eight hours to get all of the programs from Heart of Wisdom put online, so they were accessible to anyone. And we've heard through your messages and communications that that's been very beneficial for people, and we're that's really helpful to get that that feedback from people that sitting here silently and being videotaped is helpful. (laughs) And we're thinking of what else we can offer. So some of the themes that I spoke on during Sashin were that fear is the mind killer. Fear will kill our ability to use the mind in an efficient and effective way in times of emergency in times of rapid change. Our practice period for the last almost 49 days has been bardo. Bardo means transition. And we weren't quite expecting this profounder transition in our lives, none of us. Um, but here it is. And practice is the, the thing that can help us the most. So we have to identify our fear, our anxiety. We have to see, is it realistically based? Or is it based on things that happened in our childhood? Maybe we didn't have enough food, and now we're terrified that there won't be enough food, and so on. Maybe we had a family member who died in in various influenza epidemics, the Asian flu, the swine flu, and so on, and now we're terrified that someone we love will die. But when we actually look through the mind at what's happening and ground ourselves in what is true right now for us, we are blessed. We are blessed. Spring has come. You know, the flowers don't care. The flowers are just blooming. The fruit trees are blooming all around us. The bees are out pollinating. The trees are leafing out. This is... To, to be in the midst of that and to see that is to ground us by itself. That life goes on. Life goes on. And always has. Life is, is the most powerful vow, is what Harada Roshi told me when we were talking about vows before I wrote the vows book. He said, life is the primary vow. This drive, tremendous drive to, for life to go on not just in human beings, but all life forms, which, of course, support our life form. And death is also normal. So this is the other theme. This is normal. This is normal. Master Shen Yang, the great Chan master, used to say, whenever you're surprised by something or distressed by something, immediately say, this is normal. And I talked about the many epidemics that have occurred, you know, only mentioning a few, around the world. And in particular, I, I talked about smallpox that was recurring every 10 years, epidemics of smallpox, every 10 to 15 years in Japan for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, like 700 years, up through the time of Dogen NG's early childhood. So this is normal. What's abnormal is that we've lived in this country for so long without an epidemic like this. We actually do have epidemics, but we don't recognize them. We have epidemics of uh, death due to smoking. We have epidemics of death due to car accidents. We have an epidemic of death due to guns. And, and, not ha- and having lax gun control laws. But because all those deaths don't come in a big rush and social media isn't telling us there's a wave of deaths moving across the U.S. and it'll hit you in one week, and because the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed, and because we've had political interference with the CDC, for example, studying deaths, from tobacco and from guns because of lobbying efforts by large corporations and because the healthcare system wasn't totally overwhelmed and healthcare providers weren't thrown into a state of anxiety and even despair it hasn't these things haven't hit us but maybe after this epidemic has passed we will begin to pay attention to these other epidemics. And maybe we will begin to pay attention to what we're now seeing as a result of a health care system that doesn't give health care to everyone in this country. To me, always part of what we aspire to, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How can you feel liberated, happy, and pursue happiness if you don't have basic health care. So there may be some very beneficial and profound changes coming now. We're also seeing, on a smaller scale, neighbor to neighbor, people helping each other, reaching out to each other, sharing uh, scarce supplies and so on. So there are many heartwarming things going on right now. May, may we be able, when death isn't staring us in the face, to be able to continue these connections with each other, which are always true but we forget. So the theme of this is normal, that you could use that as a mantra anytime you find anxiety arising, this is normal. And also that a quiet mind is the key to stability in times of turmoil. Now we realize that not everybody can practice, especially healthcare workers whose lives are extremely busy right now. Two, we have four children who are nurses, Hogan and I, and two of them are working in hospitals where there are now COVID cases. So they're on the front lines. So um, we're very aware of the need to provide some resources for healthcare providers. There's. So much guidance in the important, importance of our mind at this time, knowing our mind, working with our mind. In the Buddhist canon, so the Dhammapada, the first verses in the Dhammapada the twi- of the twin verses are these. Suffering follows one, even as the wheel follows the hoof of the draft ox, the ox pulling the cart. All that we are is the result of what we are thinking. So if we are thinking thoughts of suffering, then suffering follows us. If that's the mind that we're carrying through life, that's what follows us. Good begets good. Mind is the forerunner of all good states. Mind is chief. Mind made are they. If one speaks and acts with a pure mind, because of that, happiness follows one, even as a shadow that never leaves. And one of the comments is, a person creates their own heaven and hell, happiness and misery. What a person makes, they can unmake. What a person makes, they can unmake. This is the promise of our practice. So we are all working on our minds and working on our anxiety trying to turn it into practice and into loving-kindness, into compassion for the suffering in the world. Uh, another theme was what I call the algebra of suffering, which is if there's an amount of suffering in the world and you also suffer, then there's n plus one amount of suffering in the world. If there's an amount of suffering in the world, your heart opens in compassion, and you, re- you take the energy of your own anxiety and stress, pour it into the practice of loving kindness and compassion, pour it into helping neighbors. You know, where the many hospitals now are pleading for people to sew masks because they don't have enough masks. So this is a way we can pour the energy that's disturbing our hearts and minds into something positive and beneficial. We don't have to feel helpless at home. People are coming up with all kinds of creative strategies of things that they can offer online that might help parents, for instance, at home uh, with their children now that schools are closed. So we may feel helpless that we're not able to help in hospitals or to visit our elderly family members, but we are being effective just by doing our practice and converting the energy that can cause harm to us and others, into beneficial energy. We can become a beacon of hope and support for many people just by continuing our practice at home. We can practice with our hearts open to those who need our support, our invisible support, but our potentially very powerful support for those who are dying alone in hospitals, for the doctors in Italy who have worked for 21 days straight without going home, for nurses who are collapsing from exhaustion, for those who are frightened and lonely in quarantine, for those who have died and are being buried in trenches in Iran, oh those in Europe whose bodies are stacking up in funeral homes and morgues because no one is allowed to congregate even for a funeral, for those who are panicked because half their life savings were wiped out in the last two weeks by the stock market crash, by those who are practicing, for those who are anxious about whether they'll be able to get their medication or even food, and for those who are buying guns for fear of others coming to take their food, for the homeless who have no water to wash their hands, and for the children who are frightened because they can sense that they're Adults around them are frightened. We're practicing for all of those who don't know practice, don't know anything about practice, who cannot practice, those who have no source of spiritual solace, those who have no companionship, the companionship of a sangha. So any bit of practice you can do, even if it's only three, the three-minute breathing space, which is taught in the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy practice or mindfulness-based stress reduction, even if you can touch in, if your lives are very busy in the hospital, if you can just touch in with your feet and take three breaths before you go on to the next emergency there are many ways that we can take refuge in the practice. Whether for large periods of time like the retreat we've just done or tiny bits of time throughout the day. So I mentioned in my first talk that I wanted to tell the story of how an epidemic helped introduce Buddhism into Japan. And of course that's the Buddhism we've inherited through Zen. So this is part of an article I wrote a number of years ago for, uh, for Buddha Dharma magazine about Zenshin. So those who have chanted our lineage or women's lineage, you know that when we switch from China to Japan, we switch to Zenshin. She was the first person to be ordained as a Buddhist in Japan. And she was also the first Buddhist in Japan to be persecuted for her faith. We don't know very much about her, There's a brief account preserved in an ancient historical archive that the Japanese kept for centuries called the Nihongi. It relates that in 584 Common Era, Shima, daughter of Shiba Tato, was ordained and received the Buddhist name Zenshin. She was 11 years old, and she may have been 10 by our Western reckoning. Two other girls were ordained at the same time. These girls, Zenzo and Azen, may have been her friends or her ladies in waiting, we don't know. So why would an 11-year-old girl ordain in a foreign religion? We don't really know. We have a few facts, but we can really only speculate. Some historians believe that Zenchin's father was a diplomat from Japan to Korea. So Japanese boats at the time were fairly primitive and couldn't make the trip to China safely, but they were able to make the short crossing from from Japan to Korea. And then Koreans would provide safe escort for travelers who were moving from Korea to China. And missionary monks also traveled this route uh, carrying this new religion, Buddhism, from China through Korea to Japan. So there's been a lot of enmity between Korea and Japan um, during World War II. And so it's really interesting to know that the first person ordained in Japan was probably Korean. So relationships between Korea and Japan were quite delicate at the time. And peace was maintained through diplomatic missions and exchange of gifts, as they are today. Mm-hmm. Ten years before Zenqin was born, uh, King Seung Meung of Pakche, which was one of the kingdoms in Korea, was seeking assistance in his wars with another of the three Korean kingdoms, so internal fighting within Korea. And he sent the Japanese emperor an image of Shakyamuni Buddha in gold and copper, along with religious banners, umbrellas, and volumes of sutras. And he praised Buddhism as the religion of the civilized world, because China and Korea were very civilized compared to Japan. The people in Japan lived in uh, small feudal settlements. There was no method of writing. Uh, there was very little in the way of art or music. Uh, there was no government, no central government, no system of education, or barely because they had no writing, um, and so on. So when Buddhism came in, it actually came in with culture. That's part of the reason it was accepted by the royalty. That's a whole story in its own, of its own. So you can imagine you. The images in in, um, Japan at the time were rough clay images, very primitive. And here comes this huge image of Shakyamuni Buddha in gold and copper. It must have been the most amazing thing. And then systems of writing, volumes of sutras and so on. And uh, King Mion wrote, this doctrine can create religious merit without measure and lead to full appreciation of the highest wisdom. So the Japanese emperor, Kimei, reported leapt for joy upon hearing this and returned gifts of horses, bows, barges, and military troops to the Korean king to help him fight his battles. So this type of exchange, Buddhist clergy and goods from Korea for fierce warriors and military goods from Japan, is chronicled several times in the Nihongi. And it reveals both the source of each country's power and what each country lacked. There were at the time a large number of Koreans in the wealthier and more powerful families in Japan. Zenshin's family name is Korean or Chinese, probably Korean, and her parents may have already had Buddhist leanings, we don't know. Perhaps her father married his daughter off to the Buddha as a gesture of goodwill towards China and Korea, just as rulers in Europe gave their girls in marriage to strangers in foreign lands at that time to cement alliances and prevent war with neighboring countries. So there are many other uh, speculations about why she became the first ordained person in Japan. The Nihongi relates that in 577, seven years before Zenshin was ordained, the king of Pakche presented Emperor Bidatsu of Japan, new emperor, With the following gifts, a number of volumes of religious books, an ascetic, a meditative monk, a nun, a reciter of sutras, a maker of Buddhist images, and a temple architect. This is a Buddhist startup kit. (laughs) A meditative monk, a nun, an ascetic, and an architect. (laughs) And somebody to make Buddhist images for you. Pretty amazing, huh? And some religious books. All it lacks, all this kit lacks, is native candidates for ordination. And perhaps zen and her friends were recruited to people the first Buddhist temple constructed in Japan. Or we could imagine the opposite, that these three preteen girls rebelled against their parents and decided on their own to join the headstrong youth with an attitude who collected themselves around exotic foreigners, and there's evidence of that, that young people would flock to these exotic foreigners and learn to sing and dance with them. So they would collect themselves around exotic foreigners and adopt their ways. We're going to get our heads shaved and we don't care what you say. (laughs) So was Buddhism once also a counterculture movement in Japan. Zenshin's ordination occurred in the setting of intense political rivalry also. This is probably one of the main reasons. The importation of Buddhism into Japan was opposed by two powerful and conservative clans, the Mononobe, who led the emperor's military forces, and the Nakatomi, who were in charge of the religious rituals of Shinto, which was at the time the indigenous religion of Japan. But there was another rising and progressive clan called the Soga clan that supported Buddhism, declaring all countries of the West worship this Buddha Why should Japan alone deny him? Empress Suiko, who was the daughter of Emperor Kimei, another emperor, and granddaughter of Soga no Umako, offered her palace at Sakurai as a site for a Buddhist temple. Zenshin's father was close to the Soga no Umako, and Soga asked Zenshin's father, we know this, and two other men to search in all directions for someone who practiced Buddhism. They found Hye Pyon, a Korean layman, who had once been a Buddhist priest, and an old Korean nun, Pop Myong, who were able to give initial instruction in Buddhist practices to Zen and her two friends. So here we have these probably unknown people, one a foreign, uh, formerly a priest and one an old nun. And they were, you know, scrounged up, they scrounged through the countryside and found them and said, please instruct these young women uh, in basic Buddhist practice. Then Soga erected a temple for the new nuns and enshrined a stone image of Miroku Buddha that he had requested from Korea. He also gave orders that they be provided with food and clothing Soga had witnessed a miraculous Buddha relic that floated or sank in water upon command and that broke an iron hammer when an attempt was made to crush it. And therefore, he became a fervent believer in the new religion. And he dedicated part of his home, extensive home, uh, to building a a second temple in his own home. But six months later, an epidemic probably smallpox, swept through the land. Mononobe, who was the arch rival of Soga, convinced the emperor that the pestilence was due to the establishment of Buddhism. Mononobe destroyed a pagoda that Soga had built, set fire to the nuns' temple, and took the remains of the Buddha statue and flung it into a nearby canal. He summoned the three nuns, remember these are pre-teens or early teenagers, stripped them of their three robes and had them flogged and imprisoned. Over the next three months of summer heat, the epidemic grew worse and even the emperor fell ill. Dying people cried out that their bodies felt as if they were on fire and that this must be retribution, punishment for the burning of the Buddha image. So Soga again petitioned the emperor and begged to be allowed the succor of the three treasures. The emperor decreed that Soga alone could practice Buddhism. The three nuns were released into his care and he rebuilt their temple. That autumn, the emperor died, but Buddhism did not. Zenjin and her nuns continued to practice, and two years later, in 586, they asked permission to go to Korea to be fully trained in the precepts. Uh, According to the Vinaya, you couldn't be ordained unless you had ten monks or ten nuns who were already ordained, gathered to do the ordination. So they had to go to Korea to be fully trained. They returned to Japan as fully ordained Biksuni after three years of training, whereupon many other people undertook ordination and many Buddhist temples were built. A year after Zenshin left for Korea, the Mononobe clan was defeated in battle and subsequently annihilated, which is something that was done at the time. You annihilated an entire clan if you beat them in battle uh, so that they couldn't rise up again. Zenshin returned to a country that was ready with the encouragement of Empress Suiko to embrace Buddhism. And within 40 years... There were 569 nuns and 816 monks in Japan. When Zenshin was barely 30 years old, Prince Shotoku demonstrated his faith in the Buddha Dharma in the first constitution ever written that we know of in the entire world. In this constitution establishing his government, he wrote Sincerely reverence the three treasures. The three treasures, the Buddha, the law, and the priesthood, are the final refuge. For few people are utterly bad that may be taught, but if they do not betake them to the three treasures, by what means can their crookedness be made straight? Shotoku was also unusual because he supported all religions. Although he endorsed Buddhism himself and practiced it himself, he also was open to all religions that helped sustain people and straighten their crookedness. Two years later, in 606, Shotoku had a 16-foot image of the Buddha created and erected in honor of Zenshin, her father and her brother. no matter what the reasons were for Zenshin's ordination, whether she was a reluctant nun or a political pawn or a rebellious teen or a vestal virgin, which was traditional in Shinto, that virginal girls would be offered to the temple to serve at the temple for the rest of their life, something happened to transform her Somehow, during the time the girls were training with the old Korean nun, Myung, during the few months they were able to practice before the tides of public sentiment turned, the practice somehow took. It took firmly enough for them to sustain, be sustained through the terror, you can imagine, the terror of the destruction of their temple, the humiliation of being stripped and flogged and paraded through the streets and the misery of their imprisonment. Perhaps this is the very time the Buddha Dharma took root in these girls and thus in Japan, when it provided a true refuge in the midst of suffering. Perhaps this is the test of who is a Buddhist, a person who practices in the good times so that they can take refuge in the practice in the bad times, when the need is urgent. It is inspiring that a girl, actually a child, found this fearless center for herself in an environment steeped in political intrigue and marked by the assassination of entire families. Zenchin's life also tells us that the effects of one person's practice, no matter what spiritual practice that is, should not be underestimated. It can catalyze the transformation of an entire country. It can last for thousands of years through all the ups and downs of human fortune and whim. Let us all thank this earnest child, Zenshin, whose sincere practice has brought us the happiest gift, the gift of Dharma, the gift of no fear to us today. I want to end by reading what I read yesterday at the end of my talk. The situation the world is in, the situation Oregon is in, the situation the monastery is in, the situation that all of you who are listening to this talk are in, is normal. This situation is normal. It only seems abnormal because we have been lulled in a time of prosperity and and relative peace in this country into thinking this will continue always. And I will die quietly in my sleep when I'm 100 years old. This is normal. We practice for all of those who have suffered and are suffering at this moment. We practice in the good times so that we are fortified for the difficult times. We practice to end our own suffering, to lessen by even one the suffering in the world. We practice to keep alive the determination of Zen and the two other young women with her. The determination of all of our ancestors, male, female, known and unknown, to make their clarity and compassion our own. We practice to be able to pass on this most precious gift, the gift of no fear, the means of turning our fear and anxiety into benefit. Please use the energy of anxiety, of fear, and turn it to good use to delve deeper into practice with the determination to become clearer So that you will be better able to serve in this world of unending samsara. Because you know for yourself this practice works. Rejoice in the spring that is blooming all around you. Be prudent, take good care. And moment by moment, we will see this situation unfold. And if our minds and hearts are clear, we will be able to respond effectively. Thank you.